If you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and uh, open it to the minor prophet Micah. Micah. If you don't know where Micah is, there's a handy-dandy table of contents in your Bible. Slowly but surely making our way through these minor prophets this summer, which unfortunately are, I think, um, are some of the most neglected books in the in the Bible. I I, I say unfortunately because uh, really they're fascinating and they're um, extraordinarily relevant, uh, not just to their own time but to our own culture and time. They do take a bit of work to understand sometimes, read through it slowly and carefully a, a few times, and go back to the historical context. You know, in First Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. Or if you're in the later prophets, um, after the exile, you'd want to go to Ezra and Nehemiah for that background. Um, but I, and I, I, I tried to put some of that background on the group me uh, yesterday. I hope some of you were able to read that. But today we're going to think about Micah in the same vein that we've been thinking about all the others. That is the gospel according to Micah. The gospel according to Micah. Uh, I, the reason we're thinking of it this way is because of some things we read in the New Testament. So the way we began this whole series is by remembering how Paul began his letter to the Romans when he said, this is the first opening words of that letter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, uh, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel, Paul says, the gospel message itself was in some measure promised and foreshadowed ahead of time in these prophets. And then, even more pertinently, Jesus himself, after his resurrection, in his resurrection appearance uh, in Luke 24, twice on, to two men on the road to Emmaus, and then later to his own disciples, on the road to Emmaus, he told these two men on this road to a town called Emmaus, he said, uh, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He, Jesus, interpreted to them, those two men, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so the, Jesus said there are things in these prophets that are concerning him, you know, centuries ahead of time. And he said right after that to his own uh, disciples in the same chapter, he told his own disciples that everything, these are my words I spoke to you, that everything written about me, in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's what we're trying to do in this whole series through these minor prophets. Not just to understand them in their own time uh, and, and how their message pertained to their own time, but also how, how specifically was God foreshadowing and promising the gospel of the coming of Jesus Christ and what Jesus would do all those centuries earlier through these same prophets. Like I said, we've already done that with four of the prophets um, we uh, Joel and Amos and Hosea and Jonah, and today we come to Micah. But um, who was Micah? Uh, where and when did he live? When, it's been our custom to rehearse some of this background before we get uh, to the message of the prophet. That's helpful for a couple of reasons, and I'll just commend it to you to do the hard work. When I when if I put it out there and say, hey, it might be to your benefit to read Kings fifteen through. Uh, 20 and and second chronicles 27 through uh, 32 or whatever i really do commend you to read that uh, for a couple of reasons one uh like i've said before it helps you to 
To know what was going on in the background helps you to understand some of the things that the prophet says. Because it's written in poetry, it's not just like straight story form, so you kind of have to do a little bit of careful thinking. In it. And he might say a phrase, or he might call out some sin, or call out some instance. And if, you've, if, you've not, if you're just coming to the, to the book cold, you won't have any idea what he's talking about. But if you've already read that background material, it might trigger something. Oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. I just read it. So it, it helps to understand the prophet, but also the second reason I would say read this historical background is because sometimes when you read these prophets, because it's poetry, and a lot of times, it feels sort of timeless. You know, it, it, it just, it, I don't know, it's hard to situate it anywhere. It feels sort of esoteric and, and just timeless. And, and sometimes if, when, you read, when you read the historical background, it kind of brings it to life. It kind of remembers that Micah was a real man, and Micah lived in a real time, and there was real stuff going on around Micah, you know? Um, and, and it helps, it helps the, the, these minor prophets come down out of the clouds and into real life. And uh, so I, I encourage you to, to dig into the background as well as into the prophet himself. Before we get to that, I want to pray and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you so much for leaving us the words of these prophets. Thank you especially for uh, raising up and, and bringing your word and, and, and uh, preserving your word through the prophet Micah for us still today. Lord, uh, we won't have time to read all of it. We will read much of it, many different from many different uh, parts of its seven chapters. And uh, we thank you and, and recognize that whatever we do read and the message that he brought is your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, necessary word to us. There is not one wasted word. And uh, all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Father, give us eyes to see the truth that, that uh, you brought through Micah. Give us uh, minds to think about it clearly, to, to block out all distractions and think clearly, and help us to see as important what you say is important, to care, and uh, give us give us. Uh, hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see here um, and to feel deeply uh, what you say we should feel deeply about. Give us wills to obey whatever you call us to do. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who was Micah? When did he live? What was going on around him? So Micah was a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom. Remember, I, I've told you almost weekly that after so you had King David was the high watermark in Israel. His son Solomon reigned in his place when David died. But it, cracks in the, in, the, in the structure were beginning to appear during Solomon's day. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split into two different kingdoms uh, between north and south. The northern kingdom uh, were the, of those 12 tribes, the northern 10 tribes was by far the larger of the two. The northern 10 tribes became the northern kingdom, they retained the name Israel. Okay? The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, were the southern kingdom, and they took the name Judah because it was the larger of those two tribes. In the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, Israel 
the capital city, it's, it's helpful to know these things because when you read these, you see these words, you don't know what they are. The capital city of the northern kingdom was a town called Samaria. Samaria. Um, and then the, the capital city of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. That's where the temple was, etc., etc. So Israel's capital, Samaria, northern kingdom. Judah, capital city, Jerusalem, southern kingdom. So far, every prophet we've looked at was from the northern kingdom. All those we've studied so far prophesied in the northern kingdom. Why? Because they fell into, just historically speaking, the, the northern kingdom fell into idolatry and into immorality much faster than did Judah. Uh, because they, why? Because remember, what's the capital city of the, of the southern kingdom? Jerusalem. What was the big, big well-known structure in Jerusalem? The temple. There it is. And so northern kingdom didn't have the temple. They didn't, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem anymore. So what they did in the northern kingdom was to create their own places of worship. And they didn't copy the pattern of Judah. They didn't copy the pattern of the temple in Jerusalem. They copied the pattern of the nations around them. And they made these high places. And they made these places for idol worship. And they worshipped their idols and fell into all kind of um, immorality because of it. And therefore, on that, for that reason, God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to call them to repentance because they were going down fast. And he sent them many prophets to call them to repentance. Repentance which as a, as a nation never came. Judah, the southern kingdom, didn't go downhill quite as fast as Israel did, but it was far from perfect. It was a little slower at, at, at going downhill, but downhill it went. Uh, eventually it did go, and, and, and that's where Micah prophesied. In fact, he prophesied uh, at the same time as Isaiah. So... Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries with each other. They lived in the same, they both were from Judah. They both were prophesying at the same time. They probably knew each other, probably had tea. Um, and, 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 and so, and in fact, a lot of the same themes appear in both of the, in Isaiah and in Micah. And in fact, in one part in Micah, he straight quotes Isaiah. So uh, they were prophesying at the same time, though Isaiah just a little bit longer. But if you look at Micah 1.1, he identifies himself for us. There we read, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the day of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which is all concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So it just picked that apart for a little background. So Micah was from this town called Moresheth, which was about 25 miles away from Jerusalem to the southwest. So he, he was not uh, a city boy proper. He was from the country, an outsider coming into Jerusalem to prophesy against it. Uh, but it says at the end that God gave him a word, even though he's in the south and he's going to Jerusalem to, to, to prophesy, God did not give him a word just for Jerusalem, but he gave him a word concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So even though he's from the south, he prophesied things concerning both the north and the south, right? Uh, but his time stamp is that he prophesied uh, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So those guys, if you put all the historical evidence together, those guys would have prophesied all three of them together for 56 years, from 742 to 686. I don't think Micah prophesied for nearly 60 years 
uh, I think probably Micah was prophesying mostly during those latter two prophets. He probably started in, when, under the reign of John, prophesied all during Ahaz, uh, and, and uh, probably the first half of Hezekiah. So in all, about 35 or 40 years. And so let's think about these kings, because that's, that's what's forming the background of this, this book, these kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Let's say just a few words about them. Um, it was a crazy time in which he lived. It was a roller coaster. Because when he began his prophetic ministry under Jotham, Jotham was a, you read it in, in uh, 1 Kings 15, uh, 2 Chronicles 27, he was, a, he was a good king. He, it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord with one notable exception. He did not remove the high places. He did not tear down the places where they worshipped idols. He tried to do mostly what was right, but he, that was one major oversight. And therefore, it specifically tells us that even under the godly king Jotham, many of the people still followed corrupt practices. And corruption was, was growing in the southern kingdom just like it had already been in the northern kingdom. Eventually, Jotham died, and his son reigned in his place, whose name was Ahaz. Um, Ahaz was an incredibly wicked king. In fact, I brought him up when we studied through Hosea for a very specific reason. Ahaz com completely forsook the Lord. Uh, not only did he worship idols, but, but he, uh, the reason I brought him up two weeks ago is because Ahaz uh, even sacrificed his own children. To, the, to these idols. Like child sacrifice was going on in Judah under the reign of Ahaz. Even the king himself was doing it. God tried to get Ahaz's attention. This, was, this would have been going on when Micah was prophesying. The very king is sacrificing his children. God tried to get his attention, Ahaz's attention, through raising up the northern kingdom to invade the southern kingdom. They did that. And in fact, the northern kingdom was, uh, they were taking names. I mean, literally, they were, they like captured a bunch of cities, captured a bunch of people, took like 200,000 people captive back to the north. Um, of course, Ahaz was alarmed by this. Two things were going on when that happened. God sent a prophet <laughs> to the north and said, take the people back home. Like, you, you, bad stuff's going to happen to you if you keep these 200,000 people. So take them back home, which they did. To their credit. But while that was going on, Ahaz didn't know what to do. So instead of calling on the Lord for his help, Ahaz called on Assyria. Called on Assyria and their, uh, their king, get this, Tiglath-Pileser. That was the name of the uh, Assyrian king. Sometimes you'll see his name in the Bible as Pul. I can see why he went with a nickname. Tiglath-Pileser is a mouthful. But he called on Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians to help him against the northern kingdom who's taken away 200,000 of his people. I need help. Assyria, will you help me? Tiglath-Pileser said, sure. So he comes over, but Scripture specifically tells us in 2 Chronicles 28 that uh, it, it says that, that uh, he, did more help, he did more harm than help. Like he, he like said, yeah, yeah, I'll help you. But he didn't. He... he uh, he, it says specifically, he afflicted Ahaz instead of strengthening him. So he took advantage of Ahaz. What did Ahaz do then? You got the northern kingdom attacking him, taking away a bunch of people. Now they would bring it back, but he didn't know that yet. You've got what, the, the superpower to your east that you thought was going to help you. 
They didn't. They harmed you even further. What are you going to do now? Are you going to call on the Lord now? That's what God was designing in all of this. Are you going to call on the Lord now? What do you do? 2 Chronicles 28-22 tells us that Ahaz became even more faithless to the Lord. He said he shut, he shut the doors to the temple. Nobody's going to worship there. He shut the doors to the temple and he made even more high places for idol worship. Do you see how backwards that is? You can see the fallen, broken, hardened reasoning. Ahaz thought, the reason all of this bad stuff has been happening to me is not because I haven't been faithful to the Lord. It's because I haven't been faithful enough to the other gods. And so what I need to do is shut down worship altogether to the Lord and make more places of worship to my idols. Become more faithful to the idols. That's very much in the background of Micah. That's exactly when he's prophesying. That's what's going on in his neighborhood. And you don't get past the first chapter of Micah when you're, you're gonna, he's going to mention twice these high places where they worshipped idols. Mentions it twice. We'll see that. Uh, idolatry will be a big theme in the book. But then Ahaz died. He ruled for 16 years. He died. And his son, Hezekiah, became king. That's the other king mentioned in, in verse 1. Hezekiah was a great king. Scripture says he was a great king. Uh, said he was better than all that came before him. He was a great... He didn't have a good end. But his, most of his reign, 28-year reign, was good. was a great king. In fact, he... he he, uh, he opened the temple back up for worship. He called all the people of, of Judah back to faithful worship. In fact, it says he, he invited not just the southern kingdom of Judah, he invited even those in the northern kingdom to come back to faithful worship of the Lord. He reinstituted the Passover, and he said, Come, northern kingdom, come to Jerusalem and observe the Passover with us. Interestingly, when he did that, he sent messengers to invite them to come observe the Passover um, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verses 10 and 11 said that when those messengers went, went throughout the northern kingdom, it said most of the, the people in the northern kingdom, it says, and I quote, they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. But it says, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So Hezekiah was trying to do the right thing. That's, that's, that's one thing about him that's noteworthy. Uh, during the latter part of of Hezekiah's reign, there was a good king trying to do the right thing. But another thing about, that's noteworthy about Hezekiah that's, that's in the backdrop of Micah's days, I mean, you think, think about what's going on here, is uh, Hezekiah tried to undo the alliance that his father Ahaz had made with Assyria. And he said, I'm not going to pay him any money anymore. I'm not going to ask for his help anymore. I'm going to undo this alliance. I know it's wrong. We should have trusted in the Lord, not in Assyria. I'm cutting it off. Well, um, Assyria didn't like that very much. Um, Tiglath-Pileser was not king anymore then. The king at that time was a man named Sennacherib. Sennacherib. If you read in, in uh, it looks like Sennacherib. Uh, if you're reading your Bible, it's not Sennacherib. Don't ever say Sennacherib. People will laugh at you. It's Sennacherib. Of course, they might not know. Um, but Sennacherib didn't appreciate it. And so uh, he said, I'll try to force Hezekiah's hand. So he invaded Judah. And, he, and it says he, he 
conquered all these fortified cities all around Jerusalem. He basically surrounded Hezekiah. And, and he sent messengers to ask Hezekiah, what do you want to do now? And he started taunting, their messengers started taunting uh, Hezekiah and his men. And they were, <laughs> Hezekiah's uh, servant said, told these messengers, please speak in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. Don't, don't speak in, in Hebrew to where all the people can understand what you're saying. We'll understand you. But it says, no, no, no. They spoke in the language of the people and straight made fun of the God of Israel and said, none of these other gods have saved these other nations. Why do you think your God will save you? Terrified Hezekiah. So Hezekiah calls Isaiah the prophet and said, would you come pray with me? <laughs> and they do. And Isaiah, they prayed, and Isaiah said, uh, God will deliver you if you trust in him. Well, uh, Sennacherib didn't stop. He sent a letter, terrified Hezekiah again. So Hezekiah took that letter, and he spread it out before the Lord, and he prayed again. And God gave Isaiah a word, a specific word of prophecy that, that Israel would prevail against the Assyrians. And sure enough, it says... Uh, that uh, the Lord sent an angel who killed in one night 185,000 Assyrians. And they were delivered. That's, that's a big deal. That's actually going on. I think that there's a, there's a reference to that uh, in chapter 4. We won't have time to look at it. But uh, I'll just mention, well, I'm going to mention it real quick. It says uh, in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. You see that? You see that in verse 4 of chapter 4? They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid. When those messengers from Sennacherib were taunting Israel in, in 2 Kings 18, one of the things that they say, if you'll serve us, if you, don't, if you forsake your God and you put your trust in us and the Assyrians and our mighty arm, we will make sure all of your men sit under his own fig tree. All right? And, uh, and under his own vine, we will take care of you. And this is the Lord and Micah saying, no, 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 no. You trust in me. I will make you sit under your own fig tree. I will make you sit under your own vine. That's all in the background here. Um, last, last bit of background before we get into the meat. It's where Micah intersects with Hezekiah. Because after God delivered him out of the Assyrians, Micah kind of got, I mean, Hezekiah kind of got proud. Uh, and he started boasting to the new up-and-coming superpower, the Babylonians. Showed him all his wealth and stuff like that. And Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah chapter 26 actually tells us that it was Micah. That Micah is the one who came to Hezekiah and, uh, and, and rebuked um, Hezekiah for doing that. And Micah is the one who confronts Hezekiah about his pride and prophesied that God's judgment would come on Judah just like it had Israel. Didn't happen immediately, didn't happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, but it would happen a hundred years later. So Micah began his prophetic ministry at the, at the end of Jotham's reign, all of Ahaz and the first half of Hezekiah. Um, and it was, it was a roller coaster ride. You went from a kind of godly king to a really wicked king to a really godly king and there's Assyrians, there's terror, terror going on, it's, it's a crazy time. Uh, Micah's prophecy follows a lot of the same things that Isaiah talks about for good reason. They're in the same place, same time. I want to think about three things uh, and when we think about Micah. I want to think about the, the context of their situation. By that, I don't mean all that I just talked about. 
uh, outside the book of Micah. I mean the, the context of what are the specific sins uh, that, that Micah mentions in this book? What is he prophesying against specifically? But then that will set the stage to understand, secondly, the curse of their sin. What was the judgment that God was announcing through Micah to bring on the people because of their sin? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the coming of their salvation. This is a really beautiful aspect of Micah's prophecy that interwoven with all these passages of judgment are these passages of hope and restoration uh, to point us directly to Christ confirmed in the New Testament. So that's what I want us to see here. And I think if we get these things, we'll have a good grasp on Micah as well as the unified story of Scripture pointing us to Christ. So let's think first about the context of their situation. I just gave you a load of historical context behind the book, which is important for understanding Micah. But what are the specific things that Micah prophesies against? What what is the focus of the book? When Jesus was asked... Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? How did Jesus answer? Jesus said, the first and great, greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And then he said a second one is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, it's those two commandments that seem to, that the, the idea of those two commandments are, are underlying the specific sins in Micah. Uh, love God and love your neighbor. They were doing neither. <laughs> they weren't loving God and they weren't loving their neighbor. And incidentally, when you, when you read Micah and, and you get a sense of the sins that he's calling out, that it's, it revolves around those two things. He calls them out for idolatry, which is not loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And he calls, he calls out also how the wealthy were treating and mis, or mistreating and abusing the poor, which is not loving the neighbor as yourself. Let's think about their idolatry. How does, how does he call out their idolatry? Micah says right at the outset, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2 and verse 3. Hear, O hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. What are those high places? I told you, those high places are reference to the places where they sacrifice to their idols. These high places. Do you see, though, the intentional irony in those verses? If you want to call it that. The people were worshiping these idols on these high places. And yet the Lord has to come down to, 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 to judge it. So the same kind of thing happens earlier in the Bible in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. You know, and, and they, they say in, in Genesis 11:4, Come, let us build ourselves a city with its tower in the top of the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Tower reaching to heaven, and yet in the next verse, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Right? Uh, no matter how majestic it looks from man's perspective, it pales in comparison to the glory and majesty of God. The same thing's going on in Micah. God is coming down to judge these high places. And he continues in verse 4 and verse 5. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the high place in Judah. That's, that's, that's the height of 
of, of condemnation. The very place where the temple stood, it is the place of idol worship in Judah. That's how idolatrous the south had become. And in describing the judgment uh, that he was going to bring on, on Israel, which we'll talk about in a minute, later in chapter 1, in verse 7, here's how he describes this. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. And for the, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. That, that certainly describes the northern kingdom. That's, that's in, who's in view in verse 7. But it was also very much true of the southern kingdom under Ahaz. He even shut the doors to the, to the temple. And, and mandated only idol worship. Even sacrificing his own son. And he has Judah in mind later in chapter 5. Uh, that's the thing about these prophets. They're always linear. You kind of have to bounce around. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, God says of Judah, I will cut off sorceries from your hand. and You shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. That's what an idol really is. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. All that was taking place in Jerusalem at that time, just as it was in the north. And if you're open there, chapter 6, verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsel. You have kept the statutes of Omri. Judah, you you were following in the way of Omri and Ahab. If you don't know your Old Testament history, Omri and Ahab were also kings in Israel. Both really wicked kings. In fact, you can read about both of them in 1 Kings chapter 16. Ahab gets a lot of attention, several chapters of Ahab's life. Omri is the one who actually built Samaria, which is the capital of the north. Ahab was famously married to Jezebel, right? And, and really, really wicked, had... Uh, had confrontations with Elijah and Elisha. God was saying Jerusalem and Judah were guilty of the same. And in fact, at the end of chapter 1, he calls out the wicked cities of Judah by name. Tell it not in Gath, verse 10. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, verse 11. And as he's calling out those cities, in, chapter, in verse 13, he comes to this city called Lachish. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. What does he say about Lachish in verse 13? He says, It, Lachish, was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. So it looks like much of the idolatry that, that grew and grew in Judah had its beginning in the city of Lachish. But what you worship isn't private. It can't be private because what you worship will have an effect on how you treat your neighbor and love your neighbor. Um, and Micah says that in addition to their idolatry against the Lord, their relationships with each other with each other were corrupted and abusive. He calls out two people in particular in this book, the leaders, the civic leaders, and secondly, the, the priests and the prophets. Uh, that's a, that's, that's, in other words, it's, he called out the civil and economic leaders and, and also the religious leaders, the people who had civil and economic authority over them, also those who had religious authority over them. This is the focus of chapters 2 and 3 in particular. He opens chapter 2 talking about the, the civic leaders, beginning in verse 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. 
When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They're the ones that have power. They covet fields and seize them. By the way, that's a... Remember he just talked about Ahab? If you read about Ahab, Ahab, there was a famous incident where Ahab took Naboth's uh, inheritance, the land of his inheritance, and they're doing it here. Uh, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. You don't have to turn there. You can look on the screen, but way over in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. He says, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? and With a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. In chapter 3, he opens with similar words against the leaders, but then in verse 5 of chapter 3, he turns his sights on the prophets, the religious leaders. He says in verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. In other words, they favor the rich, but they are hard on the poor. They were like those that James rebukes in James chapter 2. They show favoritism. That's the context that Micah is addressing. A people full of idolatry, especially in Ahaz's reign, and full of discrimination against the poor and showing favoritism to the rich. They would only do right and help those who would help them in return. Human nature hasn't changed. Human nature never changes. Um, We are just as prone as they were toward these two sins toward idolatry. We may not have high places that we make. We may not carve anything out of wood and worship it. There are all sorts of things that we worship as idols. And, uh, and, 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 and we, all, we all mistreat our neighbors in a multitude of ways. We're all guilty, just as they were, of not loving God and not loving our neighbor. But Micah shows us in his book how serious these were to the Lord when he prophesies against them the curse of their sin. There are two, when you just, and if you read through Micah ahead of time, you might have seen this. There are sort of two levels of, of his prophecy against them. Two levels of this judgment that God's about to bring on them for their unfaithfulness. The first level is this. Micah straight up prophesies the end for both Israel and Judah. I mean, he prophesies the ultimate outcome for both of them. In chapter 1, verse 6, he prophesies... Israel is about to be done. God is going to put an end to the northern kingdom. He says in verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. And then he, that's, in verse 7 he explains why, all the idolatry. That would happen almost immediately in 722. And that's right during Micah's lifetime. He says it and then boom, it happens. And, and the Assyrians attack Israel, Israel and carry them off, conquer them and carry them off into exile. Then he turns his sights on Judah as well. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, he calls out cities by name. And then he says what he would do in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Moresha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded 
height. Even more specific in chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And they would in 586 B.C. That's when Jeremiah, that would happen when Jeremiah was prophesying. And in Jeremiah 26, 18, the elders of Judah remembered at that time, 100 years later, that Micah had said that. That Micah had prophesied that it, Judah would come to an end. And they knew that exile at the hand of the Babylonians was coming. And God was about to put an end to both Israel and Judah. That's one level of his judgment against them. He just flat out says, Israel is about to be gone. Judah would soon be gone. Done. God would, God would judge his people fully and finally. But the second layer of his judgment against them, it's interesting how he, especially with Judah, how Micah says God would judge them up until that time that they are fully and finally gone. So Micah is prophesying, uh, you know, for the sake of argument, he, let's, let's just put a, a date on like 715 B.C. That's, that's maybe when Micah was saying this in 715 B.C. Judah wouldn't be gone until 586. So, is God going to bring any measure of judgment on them in that meantime from 715 to 586? And I think he shows that, that God would uh, judge them in partial measures until that full and final judgment comes. And he... And he uh, he begins with the prophets. And here's, here's what he tells the false prophets who were showing favoritism to the rich. He tells them in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Therefore it shall be night to you without visions and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Until you finally go away and carried off by the Babylonians, God would go silent to them. Right? I mean, he said, Micah, I don't have it on the screen, but Micah would say in verse 8, this is the theme of the whole book right here in Micah 3, 8, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. God would send prophets, but to those false prophets who were showing favoritism, God would go dark. God would hide himself. They didn't want to hear from the Lord anyway, so God obliged and would hide himself from them until they go away into exile. That's for the prophets. What about the civic leaders who were showing favoritism to the rich and abusing the poor? He says in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. He would frustrate them. And even what they did get, he would take, all, take away all satisfaction in it. Sin will lose all satisfaction to them, as it always does. That's why we progress from bad to worse. So God had given His final verdict to them. He was giving them up. Israel would be given up immediately in 722. Judah, a few years later in 586, there was no reversing it. God had told them, even way back in the law, even in Leviticus, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, I will, I will give you away to exile. And He did. 
But what if there were those who did repent? Remember I told you that Hezekiah was a good king and he reopened the temple and he reinstituted the Passover. He even invited people in the north to come and, and, and it says most laughed at them to scorn and mocked them, but there were a few men who humbled themselves and came. What about those? What about those who actually did repent? What about those who did hear the word of the Lord? As a nation, they didn't repent. But there were some who did hear and did repent. What, what does God say to them? He does tell them in chapter 6 how they should come in repentance. He says in, in, uh, in Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, he says, don't, don't come to me with, if you want to repent, don't come to me with rituals, don't come to me with empty sacrifices. But he says famously in verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, if you do desire to repent, and there were some who did, come honestly in repentance. And as John the Baptist would later put it, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're going to return to, to your love for God, love your neighbor too. You can't have one without the other. But as for those who did repent, what happens to those who did repent? If they did repent as he told them to come? Well, here's what he didn't do. He didn't promise them that they could stay in the land. You know? Like, Sometimes even when we repent, we still have to reap consequences of our sin. So he didn't promise them that they could stay in the land. That was too late. Exile was coming. Verdict had already been handed down. So what kind of salvation could they hope for if they repented? That's the last thing we see, the coming of their salvation. I said at the beginning of Micah's, that Micah's book flows back and forth between judgment and salvation. There's a, there's a thread of salvation running through the book, and I want us to follow that thread quickly to see how it points us to Christ. Let's just march our way back through the book. First, we begin at the end of chapter 2. So chapter 2, after denounce, and chapters 1 and 2 is one section of the book. And after denouncing the idolatry of the people, declaring an end to Israel calling out cities in Judah by name and denouncing both the civic leaders and the prophets. After all of that, the last two verses of chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. <laughs> he who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. What he says there is, God will, God, will not, God will not give up those who repent. He will shepherd them. Who will shepherd them? He himself would. The Lord would shepherd his people. But, but what people? I mean, he just said, I'm destroying my people. What people is God going to shepherd? That brings us to chapter 4 where God promises that even though he's about to destroy Jerusalem, he would, he would call out a new Jerusalem in chapter 4. These are the words that echo Isaiah chapter 2, but he, here's how Isaiah 4 begins, verses 1 through 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. And say, 
Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. God is saying, even though I'm giving up the earthly Jerusalem to exile, God is saying, I'm going to call out a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem is going to be made of many nations. Many peoples will come. And it will be a kingdom that's not of this world. In other words, I will build this not with, sword, not with, not with uh, uh, swords because you will beat them into plowshares. I'm going to build this, this, this uh, new Jerusalem not with spears because you're going to beat them into pruning hooks. This is, a, this, is a, this is a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem that's not of this world. I'm going to call them and it's not going to be Israel. Many nations will come. But how will it happen? Who will bring it about? That's chapter 5. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So this deliverer who's going to call out a new Jerusalem would not be like the other kings of Judah, those who were born in Jerusalem. This would be another king, a new king who would be like, like a new David, also born in Bethlehem. Matthew, the gospel writer, quotes this verse in Matthew 2.6 at the birth of Christ. That it was his birth, Jesus' birth, that Micah is talking about here in Micah 5.2. Jesus is the ruler coming. And he says in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, first part, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I think it was Paul who told the Ephesians about Jesus that he himself is our peace. As Micah brings the book to a close, and we bring this to a close because we've got to go. Micah gives them in chapter 7 two assurances that God will do this. Two assurances that this, that this would take place as he said. He says in, in, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, that they could trust that God would do this because of God's character to bring it about. God's character, verses 18 and 19, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God's character is their assurance that he would save those who repent. Maybe not in an earthly land, but in a better land. And the second assurance he gives them is in verse 20, the last verse of the book, and that is his promise. God's not just God's character, but God's promise. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's interesting that he brings up Abraham because he said this new Jerusalem, many nations would come to it. Many peoples would come to it. That's why we go to the nations, by the way. But what was the promise given to Abraham? That it would be through one of his descendants that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so even as he had to judge the wickedness of Israel and, and of Judah, sending them both into earthly exile, 
God would not forget His promise or fail to keep it. And that's the Gospel according to Micah. 